Chapter 2 of Galatians concludes with the statement, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if it's possible to earn our standing before God through obedience to the law, there would be no need for the crucifixion. If it were possible for us to be brought back into relationship with our Creator through obedience, then the horror of the crucifixion was totally unnecessary. We could have worked our way back into God's good graces. But we know from experience, as well as revelation, that it is not possible to regain our standing before a holy God through obedience. And the reason is quite simple. We all sin. We fall short. And the Galatians knew that. Those among them of Jewish heritage had tried but had failed to keep the Mosaic law. And the Gentiles intuitively knew they hadn't lived lives acceptable to God, even the God they only knew through creation. That's why when Paul preached Christ and his offer of grace to the Galatians, they accepted it. They accepted the gift of forgiveness through the cross of Christ. They had come to understand that it was through the crucifixion that they had been justified in God's eyes, that Christ had paid the penalty for their sin on the cross, and God was therefore able to view them just as if they had never sinned. But after Paul left Galatia, the Judaizers came to town. They were Jews who had become Christians, but did not believe that Gentiles could become Christians without also becoming Jewish. They told the Galatians that the Gentile believers among them could not ignore the Jewish law, any part of it, that it was from God, and that he expected those who wanted a relationship with him to follow it. And they not only expected them to follow the moral law, you know, they also expected them to follow the ceremonial law, that God wanted them to obey all the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, and that included circumcision for the males among them, of course. Apparently, some agreed to do so and began striving to observe all the laws like good Jews, and they, they could associate with the Gentile Christians who wouldn't, thinking they might be defiled by them, as Peter had done in Antioch. In short, the Judaizers had convinced the Galatians that their relationship with God still depended upon their obedience to the law. And as Paul had confronted Peter, so he now confronted the Galatians by writing, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, admittedly, Paul's words here are harsh, but not nearly as harsh as some translators would have us believe. J.B. Phillips translates this as, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. And the New English Bible says, You stupid Galatians. 
And at first glance, it may appear that Paul is calling Galatians fools, <clears throat> Mark, but he's not. He is not disregarding Jesus' warning against calling anyone a fool. To call someone a fool is to declare them to be worthless, totally incompetent, and morally bankrupt. And we are to never make such a judgment of someone's character. Jesus said to do so makes us guilty enough before God to be condemned ourselves. So no, Paul is not calling the Galatians fools. He doesn't use the word moros, from which we get the word moron. He uses a word that simply means they were not thinking. They weren't using their heads. And he was shocked that they hadn't thought through what they were doing. In fact, he said, who has bewitched you? He was wondering who had cast a spell on them, who had befuddled them. They knew better. They knew better than to go back to the law, especially after having seen in their mind's eye such a clear picture of the crucified Christ. And Paul had set before them a very clear picture of the crucified Christ. He had made it as clear for them as if he had posted it on a public bulletin board or carried it as a poster in a parade. They had seen Jesus on the cross. And they understood why he was there. Paul had made certain of that. They knew he was there to pay the penalty for their sins. They realized their sins, their failure to keep the law, had condemned them to an eternity apart from a holy God. And they understood that Jesus had to make them acceptable to God because it was impossible for them to do so for themselves. Jesus had done for them what they could not do. They had understood that. They had believed it and accepted it. They had trusted in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. But the Judaizers had apparently bewitched them. They had messed up their thinking and had taken them back to the law. The end result was that without realizing it, they had lost faith in what Christ had done for them on the cross. They had lost faith in the crucifixion, and Paul is determined to bring them back to faith. In fact, that's the purpose of this letter. So he challenges them and us to think all this through again. He begins by asking, in effect, how were you saved? Were you saved by faith or by works? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? After asking who had bewitched them, Paul asks another very pointed question. He doesn't attack them and put them on the defensive. But he does ask a question to get them thinking. And he begins by making it clear that this is the only thing I want to find out from you. This is all I want to know. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, he's not asking about some kind of Pentecostal experience here. He's merely asking them how the Spirit had come to dwell within them. 
He's asking how the Spirit had come into their life, how they had become Christians in the first place. Had they made themselves good enough through obedience to the law for Christ to inhabit them? Had they made themselves into vessels fit to house the Spirit of God? Hardly, hardly. They couldn't do that, and they knew it. There's no way they could keep the law perfectly. And that's what it would take to be good enough to house the Holy Spirit of God, to become temples of the Holy Spirit on their own. So they had received the Spirit. How? By works of the law or by having faith in what they'd been told? The answer was obvious. They had heard the gospel, the good news, that someone else had done for them what they could not do for themselves. That Christ had paid the penalty for their sins and had made it possible for them to become acceptable in the sight of a holy God. When they heard it, they believed it. They had faith in the gospel message and accepted it. They trusted in what Christ had done, and they asked God to make them acceptable through faith in what Christ had done for them. So were they saved by works or by faith, by what they did or what Christ did? They knew the answer to that. They were saved by faith. They had expressed their faith in what Christ did by allowing themselves to be spiritually crucified with him. And like the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, they had received the Holy Spirit when they repented and were baptized into Christ's death. The Galatians knew they'd been saved through faith in their crucifixion. And Paul knew they knew it. So he then led them to think about another aspect of the crucifixion. How were they being perfected? How were they being made into the image of Christ? He continues. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Judaizers had said, okay, you become Christians. You've been introduced to God through Jesus, but that's not enough. If you want to stay in his good graces, you've got to get busy. You've got to find out everything that's commanded in the Bible and do it, beginning with circumcision. If you don't, you'll not remain acceptable to God. He will disown you. Now, this is not an idea that disappeared 2,000 years ago. Many today, like the Judaizers of old, contend that even if we are saved by grace, our relationship with God is maintained by works. That now that we've been saved, we must start reading the Bible, praying, going to church, taking the Lord's Supper, and following the Ten Commandments. And if we don't, God will reject us. That we may have been saved by grace, but we stay saved by works. How do you respond to that? 
How do you respond to Paul's question? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know, that's not as easy to answer as we might think. Because we all know that Christians are expected to read the Bible, pray, go to church, partake of the Lord's Supper, and live moral lives. But the question is, is that what keeps us acceptable to God? If we say yes, we have a big problem. Actually, we have two problems. One is theological, and the other is personally disconcerting. If we answer yes, we make the sacrifice of Christ unnecessary. If we can keep ourselves saved by our good works, surely we could have been saved and saved ourselves by them in the very first place. That's theologically But then on a personal level, it gets even worse. If we believe we remain saved through our good works, how do we know if we've done enough? If it's through Bible study, prayer, communion, and obedience to his commands that we retain acceptance with God, how much does it take? Is an hour a day in the Bible And in prayer, enough? Or does God expect more than that? And if so, how much more? How many Sundays can I miss and still be considered faithful? And how do I know if he's excused my absences from worship and around his table? And what about obedience to the moral law? If I can't keep it perfectly even after being inhabited by his spirit, where do I stand? Let me tell you. If you're trusting in your obedience to keep you saved, you're doomed. You've slipped back into trying to earn a relationship with God, and there's no way anyone can do that. There is no way we can be saved by our works And there is no way we can be perfected by our works, or as Paul says, by the flesh. We are saved, and our relationship with God is maintained by faith in what Christ did on the cross. Nothing less and nothing more. Now, James does make it clear that our faith will be evidenced That if we believe in Christ and are trusting in what he did for us, we will demonstrate our faith in him by what we do. We will read his word and pray and worship. We'll want to learn more and be more like Jesus. And if we love him, we will strive to keep his commandments but we won't do so to become acceptable to him. We'll do so because we are acceptable to him and have been brought into relationship with him. Works can never make us acceptable to God before we're saved or after. 
They are merely expressions of our faith, responses of love and a desire to please. They must never be viewed as attempts to earn acceptance. You know, if you love someone, you will want to please them. But you don't please them to earn their love. No, we don't earn God's love through obedience. And we are not perfected by fear of rejection. We're perfected the same way we're saved, by faith in what Christ did and does for us. He saved us from the consequences of our sin when we confess faith in what he did for us on the cross. And he motivates us and empowers us to live lives of love and gratitude through the spirit he provides. We are saved by faith, perfected by faith, and empowered by faith. He continues. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? When Paul asked if they had suffered so many things in vain, he isn't necessarily talking about suffering as, as we think of it. That's not to say the Galatians didn't actually suffer for their faith. They may have. They may have been ostracized for believing in a crucified Christ. That's, that's a horrible picture. The world doesn't like that. And if they had, that suffering would have been in vain if they could have been saved by something less offensive. If they just let people see good works and say that's what saved them. People would admire them. To say that our salvation is dependent upon a crucified Christ is offensive. The world likes people who do good things. And if we give the impression that that's what keeps us in God's good graces, we're messing things up big time. That could be what they're talking about here. It suffered because of their faith. But the word also has a broader usage. It can include all of our experiences, not just those we might deem painful. Paul may be simply trying to get the Galatians to acknowledge that all of their Christian experiences were empty of meaning if they were things they had done on their own. If the changes that had taken place and what had appeared to be supernatural activity had simply been the result of living a moral life, their faith in God was in vain. If we can live a successful life without a crucified, resurrected, and living Savior, why have one? Why become a Christian? Well, some might suggest that the only reason to do so is to prepare for life after death. But Christ came not only to give us eternal life, but an abundant life as well. To then live our life as if he were unnecessary is to live in denial of what Christ has done for you. Did the Galatians really think 
They had brought the Holy Spirit into their lives by the quality of their lives. Did they think the miracles that were being performed in their midst were brought about by what they were doing? Surely not. God didn't come into our lives through human effort. And his miraculous intervention in our lives does not depend upon our works. How many times do you hear of someone wondering why God didn't answer their prayer and say, I must not have done enough? That's heresy. You could never do enough to merit God's favor. Never. It's all of God. What he did for us and what he continues to do for us did not come about as a result of our works. It came about through faith in him. Faith in what he could do for us. What we could not do for ourselves. We are saved by faith. We are perfected by faith. And we are empowered for life by faith. It's all about him. It's not about us. So we don't place our trust in ourselves and what we do and our goodness and how God smiles on us now and therefore grants us all these blessings. No, 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 no. We don't trust in ourselves. We place our trust in him and in him we grasp that, it changes everything. Life becomes beautiful. We're not trusting in our goodness, we're trusting in him. As the song says, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.